All right, well, good morning, Mercy Hill family. Before you open your Bibles this morning, um, I just want to speak to what Jared prayed about. Um, some, many of you saw on a social media post over the weekend, and um, some of you don't know this, but um, it's on my heart, and I know it's on many of your hearts, so I just want to speak to it for a moment. We're part of a family of churches called the Soma Family of Churches that began on the West Coast in Tacoma, Washington, um, by a pastor named Jeff Vanderstelt. And uh, that network of churches is committed to making disciples uh, through the practice of, of missional communities. And um, that's what we've been about over the last eight years in, in making disciples. And um, Jeff discipled a young man named Randy Sheets. who Randy was a former Army Ranger, and some of you know Randy. Um, Randy was with us. Randy and Lisa were with us in San Diego last year. Um, with our leadership when we were there for the, the uh, annual time in which the Soma Family Churches come together. And um, Randy has suffered from PTSD. He served in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Wonderful, passionate leader, mighty man of God, and he ended his life on Thursday morning abruptly. Um, and that church and that family of leaders and literally our friends across the world um, are grieving and, and lamenting, and rightfully so. Um, and we are confident that Randy is with Jesus. And um, we also know that God is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we pray that over Lisa and their four kids who are ages like three to eight years old. And um, uh, just listen to a podcast that Randy uh, was interviewed in about four weeks ago talking about um, all the things he learned as an army ranger that uh, are, have been helpful in making disciples. Just so passionate for Jesus. And um, my takeaway, uh, just being brokenhearted all weekend, hearing about this on Friday night. My takeaway is that uh, there is evil and that Satan is real and that we must be on guard and that this world is hard and we need to love one another. And so I just, I just appeal to you that uh, we need one another and that we're all broken in some way or another and that we all need Jesus. And so uh, thankful for Psalm 46 in our CBR journal reading yesterday that says God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Psalm 46, 1. And taking refuge in verses like that. So pray for Randy. Pray for Lisa, his wife. You can contribute to their memorial fund. Um, you can find that on the Soma Tacoma website or on their Facebook page. So um, let me just pray for them one more time. And then we'll look into the scriptures. Father, with heavy hearts, we grieve Randy's passing. And um, God, I'm thankful for the story that you have written uh, in his life and that you used him mightily, not just as a protector of our country, but God, as a protector and a mighty warrior for your church. And I uh, thank you for the passion that you gave Randy and how um, he spoke the gospel so clearly. And God, I pray for Lisa this morning. I pray for the Soma family there in Tacoma. 
God, we pray that you would be near them. God, we know that this is not the end of the story. We know that Randy is with you. And God, we pray that they would be recipients of your peace that surpasses all understanding, even this morning. God, we pray that you would be near them as they grieve over the next weeks and months and even years. Pray for their elders, that you would give them wisdom as they lead this congregation and as this impacts our, our, our Soma family of churches, God, that we would draw near to you. And God, we recognize that we are all broken and that we are all helpless and that, Jesus, you are the only one who is true and right and good and powerful and we just admit that we need you. We need you. Oh, we need you. God, minister to this family and this congregation, we, play, we pray. We leave them in your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to give you one other quick update and ask for your prayers. Um, on Friday, I talked with the owner of the former Trinity Methodist um, on Evergreen. As you know, that we have been... For many months, we've been talking with them about renting space, and he um, finalized a verbal agreement that we hope to make um, certain on paper this next week, and if that is the case, then we would um, move towards uh, a move toward that facility in the next month or so, and so we would ask that you would pray diligently with us that um, God would continue to go before us. We need the space. Um, we need the adult space, but we wholeheartedly need the, the space for children. And so um, we believe that God is still at work, and we look forward to seeing that finalized this week. So pray with us in that direction, and come back next week. And we hope to uh, have great news, and we'll celebrate together with a Thanksgiving potluck, if that is the case. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. As you guys know, we love to study through the Word of God, and we love to study verse by verse through the Scriptures. Uh, we don't make it a habit of picking and choosing, you know, choosing, picking the, the easy passages and jumping over the difficult passages, because God has so much to speak to us through all His Word. And this is our only source for truth in this life. And so we want to emphasize the Word of God in all that we do. And we've been studying through the life of David. And I love David's life because up until this point, we've mainly been looking at little David. David in 1 Samuel. David who is real, who struggles, who has flaws, and we've seen a God of mercy. Little David who points us to the greater David, who is King Jesus. And then in this story, I think it's a wonderful story because you see over David's life, we've seen now almost 15 years of struggle and waiting. And how many can identify with that, that, that within life, there is struggle and there is waiting and there is the sense that things are not as they should be. There's a song um, that Andrew Peterson 
sings called The Reckoning. And he asked the question, how long, how long before the reckoning? And there's this sense in David's life that even though you see David waiting on the patience of God, there's also the sense that there is a reckoning, that, th- that there is a judgment that will come. And we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at that lament that David wrote as Saul and Jonathan were killed on the battlefield. And, and we looked at that idea of lament and sorrow and grief And then I have skipped over chapters 2, 3, and 4. I encourage you not to skip over them, but to go and read them. But I've skipped over them for a couple of reasons. One, I don't want us to be in the life of David for the next two years. Like I I want us to, you know, move on. Um, And then secondly, I dare you to read chapters 2, 3, and 4. It's a war movie that's that's R-rated for sure. And... In chapters 2 and 3 and 4, we see that David is anointed king over the southern tribes of Judah, but that Saul's son, Ishbosheth, tries to take leadership over the northern tribes of Israel. And we see this power struggle that emerges when men exalt themselves and when they choose expediency over morality. When they choose to do what works for them, the results are completely disastrous. And in this chapter, when men choose expediency over morality, we see chapters 2, 3, and 4. They're filled with assassins. Ishbosheth, his head is chopped off in his bed. Those men come to David with the great news, and David cuts off their hands and their feet and hangs their bodies up. I mean, it is, it is a mess. So much so that you can't tell who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And then we see what takes place with men struggling for kingdoms, to build their own kingdoms. And, and while you may hear this and say, what in the world does this have to do with me today? It might seem difficult to relate, but the truth is that, that each of us, in some way or another, We're on our own happiness quest of trying to build our own kingdom. Every human throughout history is on a happiness quest. They're searching to find fulfillment, whether that be through love or money or power or influence. They are searching for happiness in some way or another. And the life of David teaches us That happiness is only found through entrusting ourselves to God's kingdom. Entrusting ourselves to God's kingdom. And you may say, it's it's odd that you talk about the kingdom of God. Because I thought Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. I thought that was more of a New Testament thing. Didn't Jesus come in Mark 1 saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the truth is that God has always been about building a kingdom. A kingdom of redeemed people for his glory and for their joy. It's the story and the overarching narrative of scripture. And we see it clearly lived out in David's life. And I hope that you'll be encouraged today as we see God's faithfulness to bring about his plan and establish his kingdom and some of you are going to say, I don't have a lot to gain from this message. It doesn't sound very applicational. 
Well, I have news for you. The story of God's not about you. It's about God. And this book is not about you that we study, but it is for you. And when we see God's overarching narrative and when we find our place in his story, just as David did, he didn't do it perfectly and neither do we, but as David found his place as a servant under the authority of a greater king, he found joy. He found long-lasting fulfillment. He found a life that matters. Let's look at that life as it's portrayed in this kingdom of God. In verses uh, 1 through 5, we see first the promises that secure the kingdom. In verse 1, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the, kingdom, came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This kind of reads almost like we Googled David and found his Wikipedia page. I mean, it's just like lots of facts that are being thrown at us. And we're seeing um, this account of David's life in which he became king at age 30. He, he reigns for seven and a half years over the southern uh, tribes of Judah. And then he reigns over the northern tribes and the southern for 33 years. So over 40 years that he's king. And what the writer of 2 Samuel is doing in chapter 5, it's important for you to know that these are like snapshots of David's life. They're not necessarily uh, in order. But their snapshots or, or vignettes of David's life, not chronological, but they're meant to highlight God's faithfulness to keep his promises. God's faithfulness to bring about his kingdom. You can be confident that if you are on God's side, God will prevail even when we do not. Hear that, church. Even when we fall short, God will prevail. We can be confident of that if we're part of God's kingdom. So we see that David uh, becomes king, and seven and a half years in, Ishbosheth dies, and all the tribes of Israel are running to David, and they're suddenly saying, Oh, it makes sense for us to come under David's authority now that Saul's son is dead. And so they give three reasons. The first is relationship. We see in uh, verse 1, the second part, they say, we're, we're your bone and your flesh. We're all one people. What are we fighting one another for? And then not only relationship that they're in, but leadership. In verse 2, they say, David, you were the one that was leading us in and out of battle. Even while Saul was king, you were the leader, David. We all see that clearly. Finally, most importantly, and that's usually how Hebrew thought moves with what's in most important comes lastly oftentimes, the promise that they mention. God's promise. 
The promise that had been made, David, you will shepherd my people Israel and be their leader. Now, do you remember how long ago it was that that Samuel had anointed David, that Samuel had made that promise? It's likely been almost 20 years since that promise had been uttered. And God has been faithful in David's life. God has been faithful. Listen to me, church. He's been faithful to keep his promise, even in intense opposition from Saul, even though David's fear and foolishness in fleeing to the Philistines almost overwhelms him, even in the rebellion of his own people, God is a promise keeper. He is faithful even when we are not. Rest assured that God is faithful. Even when we face intense opposition. And church... Because God is faithful, it allows us to be faithful. Because we know that God is a faithful God, we can be salt and light even when we don't understand what the outcome will be. And that's not easy. It's not easy in the environment that God has placed us in. Some of you are college students and you find yourself on a campus where there's very few people who are interested in an invitation to go to a Sunday gathering. Some of you are at work with people who they have very little interest in following Jesus on a Monday morning. But because God is faithful, we can be faithful even as we minister in a city that we see in the urban environment in which we live we see sin and struggle intensified. I don't believe there's any more sin in the city than there is in the suburbs. But it's intensified in the city. Because we live with density and diversity and we can't hide ourselves or our children from the sin that's all around us and the ramifications of it that literally pour out onto our street corners. Wednesday night, a policeman knocked on my door and asked if we would take custody of a four-year-old that we've been in relationship with the family for several years now. And we were able to do that with joy and have other friends who cared for that little boy during the week and another friend who allowed him to spend the night at their home. We were able to do that with joy and not be overwhelmed because God is faithful. And because God is faithful, he gives us the strength to be salt and light, even in circumstances with extreme opposition, even in circumstances that seem hopeless. How can we be filled with hope? In hopeless circumstances, how can we be salt and light? What's the point? What does it matter? It matters because Jesus is faithful. And because Jesus is faithful and we've come under his kingship and his authority and he's called us to be salt and light, it means that we can be faithful to be his witnesses even when we don't understand how it's going to work out. Even when we don't see the results in our lifetime, we can be faithful. The second 
part of his promise that we see fulfilled is not just a promise to David. It's actually a promise to Abraham. Now stick with me for a second here. Look at verses uh, 6 through 10. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. You're like, who? The Jebusites? Who? The inhabitants of the land who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who were hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around him, the, the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, with, was with him. Let me unpack that little tidbit for you for a second. Most people don't read about the Jebusites and instantly think, oh, Genesis 15. We are seeing God's promises fulfilled, a promise that was over 800 years old. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 21, some of you who know your Bible pretty well, you're thinking, Genesis 15, that sounds about like Covenant with Abraham, God promised that he would give Abraham all of these lands and that, that they would overcome all of these evil inhabitants. And the very last one was the Jebusites. And just a few weeks ago, as we were reading in the CBR journal, you may recall that as we're reading along, we come to Joshua chapter 15, and Israel had won a victory at Jerusalem. But there's this little footnote. This little footnote that says, and they were unable to take possession of the city. It's just kind of like, huh, that's interesting. What's that there for? It's almost like the author just kind of leaves it hanging for you, like I'm going to fill in those pieces of the story later. And what takes place is that David goes up against this people and he's told that their fortress is so strong that the blind and the lame will defend the city. They're like, our walls are so impenetrable that our blind and our lame will defend against you. That's how confident that they were. And so when David says, who will go up with me to go against the blind and the lame? He's not talking about that he hates handicapped people. No. He's calling the Jebusites, the blind and the lame. And David makes his way into a water shaft that actually was outside the walls of the city. And his men, they make it into the city and they take over the city. Now, start to put the pieces of this story together. This is kind of interesting. Where have we seen Jerusalem before in David's life? Well, where did David take Goliath's head? When he chopped it off, when he killed the giant as a young boy, David takes Goliath's head to Jerusalem. As if to say, hey Jebusites, God's not finished with you yet. God still has a plan. You will be overcome. And David takes the city of Jerusalem. God's plan and his promise is fulfilled. And this becomes a city where literally the temple is built. The place of worship. And so God is faithful. He is at work. 
He's at work to establish King David. And he's at work to establish the Messiah, the anointed one throughout all of history. And that's who David is. He's the anointed one who points us to the greater David. He points us all throughout his story to King Jesus. And 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God had kept his promise for 800 years. We may say, man, that took a long time. God is faithful. And David entrusted himself to God, who is faithful, to fulfill his promises and to build his kingdom. A kingdom that is for God's glory and for our joy if we're willing to entrust ourselves to him as king. The second point of God's kingdom that we see in this story is we see the vision that prospers the kingdom. We see the vision that prospers the kingdom. Look at verses 11 and 12. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David. And cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Now, we know enough about history in David's reign that we know that, that Hiram's building did not occur until really late in David's reign. But the writer has placed this little snapshot of David right here for us in order to see and to emphasize that God has established and confirmed his kingship over Israel. He's making a point to say, I am king. I'm establishing my kingship. And when we read this, we emphasize verse 11. We look and we say, oh, look at all the carpenters and the cedar trees. What an amazing palace that, that is built for David. But the emphasis is really on verse 12. The kingdom wasn't for David. The kingdom wasn't even about David. It was God who had exalted the kingdom. And it was for the sake of God's people, Israel. And there's an important leadership lesson to see here in David's life and in God's kingdom, especially for us who live in such an individualistic society where we are primarily self-serving, even within the Western church. Individuals, primarily self-serving. Important leadership lesson here. You see that David understands that the kingdom was not about him. Look at verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of, not David, of his people Israel. David saw himself as a servant king, and he modeled that for the most part. Many people in our society today, are willing to perform, but very few are willing to serve. Many people, even in their serving, are performing. And you, you especially see it this time of the year. 
in which people want to help others out. And so, whether that be through Christmas gifts or whatever, but Jesus said in Mark 10, in verses 42 through 45, He commands us that our serving isn't about performing. He says, And Jesus called to them, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Around the holidays, what we do is sacrificial and is servant-hearted often is more focused on fulfilling a need in us than it is in true service. One of our leaders spoke out east at a church recently and um, talked a lot about Mercy House and we received a response back from one of those individuals who heard about the mission that we're on and their response was, I have a lot to offer these women. Let me know how I can be involved. I have a lot to offer these women. Let me know how I can be involved. If we really want to be involved in people's lives, it doesn't usually come through programs. And it doesn't primarily come through gifts. It first and foremost comes through relationship. Jesus modeled that. He loved us enough. He came in the flesh. He got dirty. He lived with us. He modeled that for us. If we want to serve others and not perform, it's got to be through relationship. Thirdly, in this lesson that we learn about the kingdom of God, we see the compromise that harms the kingdom. Look at verses 13 and 14. David was a man who was very flawed. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born in Jerusalem. I'm going to let you read those. I didn't memorize them all this week. <clears throat> You get the sense of what's going on here. David's compromise came in direct opposition to God's previous command. Deuteronomy 17, 17 was very clear. It was written to the king. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And, and oftentimes... We let ourselves off the hook justifying that our sin is small. But David's sin would lead to death. It would lead to a loss of spiritual leadership. It would lead to the, to the results that he's unable to build God's temple. And his sin would be passed on even to his sons. We would see that Solomon would, would struggle as well with the same sins that David struggled with. Amassing wives and silver and gold, and that, that they would, things would not end well for him. One of Satan's strategies is to cause us to minimize our sin 
in order that we would believe that it doesn't matter. But God's call to us is, is to bring our sin into the light through repentance and to ask for help from our community, from the, the men and women who are around us, from that small group that we do life with in order that we would overcome sin. Fourth and last, we see the defender who protects his kingdom. The defender who protects his kingdom. Look at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. When we look at David's life, we see that leaders naturally face opposition. David is, is leader over all of Israel, and what's the first thing that comes? All the Philistines come against him. If you've ever began to lead out in anything, you're going to go against the natural tide or the natural current. You're going to face opposition. Leaders have a vision to see what should be and a passion for what must be. And they encourage others to follow them. And that creates tension. Because they're moving against the status quo. They're stepping into any role as a leader, no matter how large or how small, naturally creates waves. Because we're, we're not okay with the status quo. We want to see that changed. And David, as he steps into this leadership position, is faced with all types of opposition. All of the Philistines, all of their tribes come against him. But get this. When God calls us to follow him as leaders in his kingdom, we're reminded that David doesn't have to protect God's kingdom alone. And neither do we. God offers his guidance and his power. Look at that. God gives David incredible guidance. When, when David goes to God and he says, God, how should I respond? Should I go up against them? God gives completely different guidance in two seemingly identical situations. At first, he says, go up. But the second time, he says, go around behind. And in it, we see God's power when we're willing to follow the wisdom of the Lord and not depend on our own wisdom. How often do we 
try to replicate what we've seen God do in the past. And God says it's not about a formula. It's not about replicating something. It's about following me. And so we see God's power displayed. David depicts God's power as bursting into the valley like a mighty rushing water and leaving the enemy's idols lying on the ground. David called the place Lord of Bursting Out. I love that. It's like a dam that bursts forth and the powerful waters took the Philistines away, defeated them. And it was, it was God's power. And then we see God as a mighty warrior going before David to strike down the Philistines. It's important that when we see God's kingdom, that we recognize that God is not simply the baby in the manger that we will long for over these next few weeks as we prepare our hearts. Yes, Jesus did come as a baby in a manger, but He is also a God of all power and all authority. He levels the enemy and He fights as a mighty warrior in battle. His kingdom will prevail. His kingdom will prevail. Now, as we think about this chapter, this kind of 30,000 foot view of the kingdom of God, of God's promises being fulfilled in the life of David, in the life of David pointing us to a greater king, King Jesus, in the narrative, the overarching narrative throughout all of Scripture, that God has been at work building a kingdom for His glory and our joy and that he will be faithful to establish the kingdom. The question is, will we be humble servants? Will we recognize Jesus as king? Will we come under his authority for all of our life? Not to pray a simple prayer in which we give our hearts to Jesus and repent of our sin for a moment as if to find a get out of hell free card. No, that's not what Jesus desires but that we would live in relationship with Jesus, understanding that not only is he a good king who has all power and all authority, but that he also sees us as his bride, that he loves us and that he cares for us and that he desires what's best for us and that we can trust him. As we think about God's overarching narrative, the kingdom of God, I just want to point out from David's story, notice that God is constantly at work in David's story. Just as he is constantly, constantly at work in the way in which each of us are part of his story. But this doesn't mean that change happens quickly. In fact, when instant change does take place, it's often someone who has tried to take control into their own hands. Someone who has chosen expediency over morality. In the end, their control always leads to evil and brokenness and death. God is at work. But He is patient. Not willing that we would suffer. But that we would come to repentance. But he is at work and his kingdom is marching forward. God will always 
lead us in triumph. As 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Even though we may fail, His kingdom cannot fail. Praise be to God who leads us into battle. Praise be to God. He is a mighty warrior. Jesus is our king. And he reigns at the right hand of God. And he is not slow in keeping his promise, but is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should repent, that all should come under his allegiance, his authority. His kingdom is eternal. It will not fail. If you're not a servant of our great King Jesus, if you don't know what that even means, but if God is stirring your heart, if you know that you need someone greater to rule your life than yourself, if you know that happiness has not been found in love and power and influence and money, I'd love to talk with you more about how Jesus can be king over your life. I'll be over here to the side. I'd love to talk with you whether it's today or sometime this week, to have coffee. Jesus is king. His kingdom will not fail. Let's pray together.